we're in the middle of potty training right now, and uh, <laughs> the visceral response. <laughs> Uh, yeah, if, you, if you're a parent, um, you know the joys of that. Some kids are easier than others, um, but otherwise, what you oftentimes doing is you end up repeating the instructions. You say, okay, okay, here is, here's a toilet. This is where you go. You pee and you poop in there, okay? Do you understand? Okay, you understand, okay? So it goes in there. You got it? Okay, you got it. And then, nope, there's an accident. Okay, so this is the toilet. Now, you understand it goes in there, right? Okay, so why did you go in your, in your, in your, uh, in your underwear? Oh, okay, so you know it goes in there, right? And you repeat this cycle over and over, and they say they get it. And you're like, yeah, okay, they got it. They can verbalize, they get it. Oh, but they, they don't get it. And you go through this cycle. And likewise, Israel keeps going through the cycle of rebellion and idolatry. And they do it again here. We've seen this song and dance before. And the question that I think we're meant to ask is, well, how is God going to respond this time? Will his patience eventually run out? And so we're going to look at this passage in two sort of large movements. First, we're going to look at Israel's idolatry, the first uh, verse 6 to verse 16, and then we'll look at God's uh, response to it as well in the passage. So first we see the danger of idolatry. Read with me in verse 6, where we see that the people of Israel again, again, did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And then notice the amount of false gods they serve. It's seven total. They served the Baals, they served the Astaroth, they served the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook Yahweh and did not serve him. They're basically serving every god except for the true god, the god of Israel. They forsake him, but they, they're all about these other seven gods. It's like an unfaithful spouse, not just committing adultery with one person, but with multiple illicit partners. And this idea of the, the, the seven different gods that are listed here, as you know, seven is oftentimes symbolic for fullness. And so it's the fullness of their idolatry being communicated here. Um, if, I, if I was to tell you that I had a bad day the other day and I said, you know, I had a really bad day yesterday. I came home from work and I realized, I don't come home from work, I work at home. But if I came home from work um, and I found out that the power was out and, I, and all the food in our fridge was, you know, it was all warm and we had to throw it out or whatever. I mean, that would be a bad day, right? But if I said I had a really, really bad day, I, in the morning my kid puked, so it puked, we had to clean up. And then when I got to work, I spilled coffee on myself. And then my boss chewed me out for something that wasn't my fault. At lunch, I realized that I had some unauthorized purchases on my credit card, and my credit card number was stolen. And then on the way home, there was a bad accident, so I got stuck in traffic, and I was late to pick up my kids. And then when I was walking into my house, I slipped on some ice, and I hurt my elbow. And then finally, when I get inside, I realize the power is out. Now, that would be a really, really, a sevenfold, you might say, bad day. As one commentator put it in the case of Israel then here, Israel's idolatry, the sevenfold nature of it, it communicates that Israel's idolatry has reached its critical mass. And their, their sevenfold idolatry, you'll notice, contrasts with God's sevenfold rescuing them from oppression. 
So look at verses 11 and 12, where here God reminds them after they've cried out, God reminds them of the salvation he's provided them and he lists seven times he saved them. And then Yahweh said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from one, the Egyptians, from two, the Amorites, from three, the Ammonites, from four, the Philistines, from five, the Sidonians also, and six, the Amalekites, and seven, the Moanites oppressed you? I think, Sam, I think you said the Mennonites oppressed you. <laughs> I'm just picturing Mennonites oppressing people. Anyways, I appreciate you reading the scripture for us, brother. I'm only teasing, it, teasing him because it's Sam. Um, but the Moanites, seventh, oppressed the people of Israel. And so the record of God's faithfulness stands in stark contrast to their utter faithlessness. And so we see that, notice, it's interesting, the very gods that they served are actually the gods of the nations who now oppress them. The gods that they serve are the very nations, the gods of those nations. Those nations are the very gods that are now oppressing them. So they serve the Ammonites and the Philistines we saw, and now in verse 7 and following, it's the very Ammonites and the Philistines who are the ones oppressing them, verse 7. So the anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. Well, goodness, some helpful gods these were. You see, idolatry enslaves that the very idols we look to for our happiness end up turning on us and oppressing us and enslaving us. If you've read the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia, Jubilee and I are reading through it right now, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you'll remember when Edmund gets into Narnia for the first time, he uh, encounters the White Witch, the, um, the antagonist in the, in the first book, and she um, convinces him that she's very good and she gives him a Turkish delight, and she says, you have to come back and bring your, your brothers and sisters. She wants, of course, to kill them. But she, she, she kind of presents herself as, as having his intentions in mind, um, having well intentions for him by promising him that he'll be a king and he'll have a kingdom. But of course, all along, she's just plotting to kill them. She, she, she doesn't have his best intentions in mind. And so, too, that's like our idols that promise us freedom, but they end up being the very things that we become enslaved to. That the very idols we look to for happiness end up bringing us just misery. They're like an abusive lover that we look to for love. We try to love them, but they turn around and just abuse us. Now, I think it's easy for us to look at Israel from, from a distance and be like, well, man, why on earth would they do that? You know, we don't worship made-up foreign deities, most of us that is, and so it's easy for us to just see how stupid it was what Israel did. But we have our own idols, even if they take a different form. The New City Catechism, which our children use, it defines idolatry this way, which I, I think is super helpful. It says idolatry is trusting in created things, any created thing, rather than the creator for our hope and happiness or our significance and security. It's trusting in created things rather than the creator for hope and happiness or security and significance. And we too become enslaved to things that we look to for, for this. And the crazy thing is, is both the Ammonites and the Philistines had already oppressed Israel earlier in the book, if you look at chapter 3. They've already been oppressed by the Ammonites and the Philistines. Now, you'd think that if you had been oppressed by a nation, that you would absolutely hate the gods that stood for those nations. You'd think that you'd want nothing to do with them. 
But Israel goes crawling right back to serving these same gods. You see, because idolatry not only leads to enslavement, but that enslavement then also leads to more and more idolatry. The man, for example, who lives for his wealth, he never has enough wealth. And so when his idol proves unsatisfying, he assumes that what he needs is, of course, more of his idol. He just didn't get enough. I need more money, presumably. Idolatry leads to more idolatry. And we fail to see then that the problem, we fail to see that the problem is actually pursuing idols. Rather, we assume that our problem is that we're just not pursuing them enough. And so take the person who looks to their spouse for fulfillment. Of course, that's going to fail. And so they don't end up questioning their idolatry. Rather, they assume, well, I must need a different spouse. Like an addict going back to their drugs so they don't get dope sick. They need to get that fixed so they don't get the dope sick. They need more of the drug in order to escape the drug. And so Israel initially cries to God for help in verse 10. But when they do so, you'll notice they don't actually turn from their idols. That doesn't happen until later. So here, when they cry out to God, they simply want relief. It's like the student who doesn't study for their exam, but they pray last minute, right there, getting ready with the Scantron. God, I promise I'll study next time. Just, just let me do well on this test just this once. Israel is not actually repenting here. They just want escape from the consequences of their sin. In other words, they just want to use God for their own purposes. They want to use God to get some relief. You see, there's a way of turning to God that doesn't actually turn from idolatry. It's turning to God as a way of using God to get what we want, which means that in such a case, God is not actually our God. What we want from God is our actual God. We just want to use God to get our God. It's a superficial repentance. We haven't actually turned from our idolatry to worship God as God. No, we simply want to use him in the service of chasing after our idols. And of course, God is not in the business of serving our idols. And so here, as we saw, God refuses to save them. When the people cry out, God instructs them. What? He says, cry out to the gods that you've chosen for yourselves. Cry out to them for help. Verse 13 and 14, yet you have forsaken me and you served other gods, therefore I'm not going to save you anymore. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Essentially, those are the gods you've, you've looked to. You've decided to look to those gods for help. Well, let them help you then. Go cry out to them. See what good they are. And of course, this exposes in Israel the fact that these gods are, they can't help. They provide nothing. They're full of empty promises. Idols enslave, but not only do they enslave, they also can't save. They also can't deliver on the promises of the things that we look to them for. And Romans 1 here is a pointed parallel to this passage. You remember in Romans 1, Paul is also talking about idolatry. He talks about the wrath of God being revealed against those who exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, that is, idols. Or, or he talks about how we worshiped and serve the creature rather than the creator. He's talking about idolatry there as well. And what does he say? He says God's response in judging them, how, how, how his wrath is revealed, is by giving humanity up to the idols that they've chosen for themselves. The same thing is happening here. Go after your idols. The judgment for idolatry 
is to be given over to our idolatry. The judgment for idolatry is idolatry. And yet we see, as we look now to God's response, that God is patient, or sorry, he's, he's impatient with our misery. He's patient with us and impatient with our misery. Read verse 16. The second half of verse 16, this incredible line that says that God became impatient over the misery of Israel. He becomes impatient with the misery, their, their suffering, their predicament. He's impatient with it. He can't stand it any longer. Literally, it's this idea of God's soul growing short with Israel's misery. His soul grows short. Elsewhere, this language gets translated like with, with Samson, that, that, that his soul was vexed. Or, or, or in Numbers 11, we see this language of growing impatient. The NIV translates this line that God could not bear Israel's misery no, he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Or the Christian Standard Bible says that he became weary. He's burdened down with Israel's misery. I mean, this is remarkable. This is, this is like scandalous and shocking grace that is not deserved. And this comes in response, of course, to the people eventually repenting and putting away their idols, as we see in verse 15 and 16. Verse 15, when the people of Israel said to Yahweh, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So now they put away their foreign gods. They actually put them away now. It, not only are they speaking to God, crying out to him, but now it's followed up with action. They put away the foreign gods from among them and they serve Yahweh. And repentance is crucial here because this passage is not a blanket promise that God rescues everybody, even those who are unrepentant. It does, though, communicate that God's grace is limitless for those who indeed come to him in repentant faith. And you'll notice in verse 16 that that it, it, verse 16 doesn't tie God's compassion. I want you to get this. It doesn't tie God's compassion to the repentance, but to her misery and suffering. In other words, our hope doesn't ultimately rest in our own repentance, but in God's compassion and mercy. That our, our repentance may be the necessary condition of our rescue, that God doesn't save unrepentant people. He may show them common grace, but he doesn't show them, show them ultimately saving grace. But our repentance is never the cause of our salvation. It may be the condition, but it's never the ultimate cause of our salvation. It's not the reason ultimately why we are saved. No, the cause of our salvation is solely and entirely the free grace of God. It is his pity for sinners and his pity alone that moves him to save, not anything found in us. And so if you, you, you may have noticed, as Sam read, that, there's, that, that the, the interaction that Israel has with Jephthah, Jephthah later on in the passage, it's cast in a way that is meant to parallel Israel's interactions with God. Did you notice that? The way that Israel interacts with God is then paralleled and reflected again in the same sort of way they interact with Jephthah. So let me walk you through those details. First, both of them are rejected by it by Israel. First, Israel forsakes God, as we saw, and likewise, Jephthah is driven out by his half-brothers. They're both rejected by Israel. But then, when trouble comes up, Israel comes crawling back to Jephthah, just as they come crawling back to God. 
So let's read verse 13 and 14 again in chapter 10. God says, yet you have forsaken me. You've rejected me. You've served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go cry out to other gods, those gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Notice that word distress. And then look at chapter 11, verses um, 15, or verse 5 and 6. It says, And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. They come crawling back to him in the same way. Verse 7, But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Didn't you reject me? Why have you now come to me when you are in, notice, distress, the same word. Jephthah is a mighty warrior, we saw in verse 1, and he's something like a mob boss, like a leader of a gang. He gets a bunch of worthless fellows, is the language, that gather around him. And so he's appealing to the Gileadites. He has something that they need when they find themselves in a pinch. And then finally, just like over and over, God saves Israel, and then they only then turn on him and go right back to their idols, so too with Jephthah, once he saves Ephraim, as we're going to see later, later on next week, they're going to end up just turning on him and returning the favor by fighting against him. And so there's a parallel here that's meant, that I think is intentional, and it's meant to showcase God's mercy in providing deliverance for his people. That even though Jephthah has been rejected by his own people, the Gileadites, he nonetheless returns and he delivers them. And likewise, even though God's own people continue to reject him, his mercy is greater than their sin, and he nonetheless comes and delivers them through Jephthah. Despite Israel's continued idolatry, God continues to show them mercy and raise up judges to rescue them. We saw that even in the previous passage, that even, even after the train wreck that was Abimelech, you remember last week? God still raises up judges in chapter 10, this little kind of minor judge section in 10 verses 1 through 5. We get the judges Tola and Jair. Even, even when the people go off the rails, as we saw, and they hit an all-time low in the book, that the land's no longer going to experience any rest. Even though they go off the rails, God's grace remains a constant. And so too here in our passage, even when the people max out and they overdose on their idolatry, God's, God is impatient with their misery and it drives him to compassion. And so in answering the question that we asked at the beginning, will God's patient run out? How will he respond? This is the answer we get. God unrelentingly rescues his people despite their unrelenting idolatry. God unrelentingly rescues his people despite their unrelenting idolatry. And there's this tension we feel in this passage, right? Even where God is saying, I'm not going to save you any longer, right? Because what they deserve is judgment. What they deserve, according to justice, is to simply be left in their sin. Now, those are the curses of the covenant. That's what they've earned. The wages of sin is death. The wages of their error is covenant curses here. And yet God is also impatient with their misery. He's compassionate. He's gracious. There's this felt tension then between God's justice and his desire to forgive. And we see this tension elsewhere across the scripture. In Exodus 34, this is 
a key moment in scripture that gets picked up elsewhere where God actually reveals himself to Moses, you remember, where God puts him behind a rock and he reveals his name to him and he describes who he is. So God's own self-description. It says in verse 6 and 7 that the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed this. This is how God describes himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Well, how do those fit? He's a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He's going to forgive our sin, and yet he by no means clears the guilty. Or I think of Hosea 11, where God, talking about the, nor- the, the northern tribes, we get this moment where we, get, we see like this account of God bringing us into his own, his own, at least in terms of how he reveals his character to us, this, this sort of like vexation he has, this conflict He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim, referring to the northern tribes? How can I hand you over, O Israel? He says, I'm going to send you into exile again, into Assyria. But how can I do that? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart, this is God talking here, my heart recoils within me at the thought of that. My my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man the Holy One in your midst, I will not come in wrath. And so even after he does judge them and send them into into Assyria, it's not the end. It's not the end of the story for them. Or as Isaiah 63 verse 9 says, that in their affliction, in the affliction of his people, he is afflicted. In our affliction, he is afflicted. And where do we see that, that reality him being afflicted with our affliction? Where do we see this seeming tension, this divine vexation between God's wrath and his mercy ultimately get resolved in? Of course, it's the very death of Christ. As Paul will tell us in Romans 3, 25 and 26, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. That's just a fancy word that means God, he, he satisfies God's wrath by sacrifice. He puts Jesus forward as a wrath-satisfying sacrifice by his blood to be received by us through faith, by trusting in him, not trusting in ourselves, by trusting in Jesus. And this, this death of Christ, was to show, it was to to, to showcase, it was to demonstrate God's righteousness so that God can be just, he can be righteous, and he can also justify us. He can declare us righteous, the one who has faith in Christ. He can forgive us and not clear the guilty because he takes that guilty sentence, and he puts it on Christ. So that in exchange, we get Christ's sentence of righteous. And that's the gospel. That's the heart of the Christian religion. That's the heart of the Bible. God unrelentingly rescues his people despite their unrelenting idolatry. God unrelentingly rescues us despite our unrelenting idolatry. And so, believer, behold your God. Take comfort and rest in this God. Maybe we look at Israel and we think, well, man, they definitely needed God's grace. But we, we, we fail to accurately assess how wayward we tend to be. We don't worship made-up foreign deities. We're not bowing down to statues. 
But we fail to recognize that our own hearts are, like John Calvin said, idol-making factories, constantly producing more idols. We, too, have reason to appreciate God's grace. As we'll close with our, our closing song, His Mercy is More, that first verse in that song says this, What love, what love could be so great so as not to remember the wrongs we have done? What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, he knows everything, and yet he counts not their sum. Our sins are thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Those sins, they are many, but his mercy is even more. And what deep comfort we can take then in this truth. Because, like, what if this truth was not real? What would like be life? What would life be like if this truth was not real? Like, we would always have to worry. Have I sinned too much this time? I know God is merciful, but, but maybe I've reached the end of his mercy this time. Maybe his mercy for me is going to run out. No, our, our, our sin can never outpace God's grace. We will never sin so much that God says, that's it, you've reached the limit. Why? Because God's determined to rescue us is more relentless than our unrelenting sin. And this means that there is always room then for repentance because we know that God's intention is to forgive us. He is not a God who delights in our misery, this passage says. He, he is impatient with our misery. This means that he is not begrudgingly gracious. He doesn't forgive us like, oh man. He wants to forgive us. He's eager to forgive. He can't wait to show us mercy. He is impatient to do so. Uh, Anne's parents visited this weekend and leading up to their visit, um, or they're visiting right now, but at, at leading up to their visit, Jubilee is all excited for them to come. Whenever grandparents come, she always wants to, she always is expecting them to be here. How many more days? How many more days? Every single day we get up, how many more days? How many more days? She's impatient for their arrival. She wants her grandparents to get here. And that's the description that we have of God who is impatient for us to repent so he can forgive us. He longs to forgive. And of course, this promise is only true for those who do, in fact, forsake their idols and turn to God in Christ. And so if you haven't done that today, would you do that? Do you feel the worthlessness of your idols? Those things that you are looking to for your happiness and significance and security outside of God? Those things that leave you enslaved in the wake of their empty promises? Turn to Christ and trust in him for salvation. And believer, not only do we behold our God and we rest in him, but this is our God. Like, why do we fiddle around with idols then? This passage is implicitly telling us, like, forsake those idols. Why would we want to fiddle around with idols when this is our God? One of the things we see in this passage is that rescue entails rule. Let me say it again. Rescue entails rule. So as with Jephthah, Jephthah says that if he's going to rescue them, he does so on the condition that he's going to rule them. And you see that in verse 9, where Jephthah says, uh, in chapter 11, verse 9, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. Like, if I'm going to save you, I want to rule over you. And likewise, God is not interested in delivering his people merely 
for us to go right back to our idols. He wants to deliver us so that we might be his people once again. And it's all for our good that God wants to rescue us from pursuing broken cisterns that can never satisfy anyways.